0: We had the the pandemic was quote unquote Spanish flu. Hmm. Um, we've known for a long time, and so uh, one thing that I personally think has been a failure of our. Um, Organization and the, our our philosophy towards disease prevention is that we're not engaging enough in public discourse and right. being able to talk to people who don't have our backgrounds. Um, and I think there's a there's a general unwillingness to do that because that's the kind of how we're trained to do it, um, or it's 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 a challenge. So I appreciate the chance to come on and talk about. What
1: that starts so here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world because no. that is how it, it works. Works. that is how it the would average works. American will meet ten thousand people in their lifetime problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience, conscience. but if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 and people, just ten people.
0: What your rights
1: are. are. And each one of those people changed change the lives of another ten people. And another ten. This is the beginning. It is not the finale. And that's why we're here. And that's why we rally. And rally. you can change the entire population of the world. Eight billion, 8 billion people. people. If you think it's hard to change the lives of ten people, change their lives forever? forever? We've got to be that something that Arnold Toynbee, the historian, refers to as the creative
0: minority. minority. You're wrong. Then others will show then up. Others will also, show up. what about no children dying? That's kinda mm-hmm. that's nice, isn't it? Nice Liberation
2: It's an internal Of oh. speaking the of truth. Speaking the truth. <laughs> the truth.
1: But their children were saved. And their children's children. children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone
2: can, anyone do, it. can do it. Adam, guess what? Yes. We're recording. Ryan, guess what? <laughs> what? We are in effect. We're not bad.
1: So, what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is what will the world look like after you change after it? You, after you change, change it, you change it,
2: you change it. Welcome. To public, to public access, access dan I, hi jeffrey hi jeffrey Yo,
3: how's it going
2: good i just wanted to uh let you know like dan and i we started um together with this uh people of reason and progress right yeah mm-hmm. All right. and uh our goal he had about thirty thousand scientists in his network and they were just churning out factual science-based papers online in person they were talking about it and dan enlisted lexi and i to kind of help him start like a broadcast division of bringing mm-hmm. in podcasts of like minds to, to talk about fa- like you and i do like talk about mm-hmm. facts and we were going to be the dirty cousin of the network where we could talk about anything from <laughs> Satanism, religion, uh, fetishism, as long as it was factual and mm-hmm. not, and not opinion based or like, uh, you know, I don't know how to say it, skewed in some way. And yeah. so Dan has always been one of my heroes. And then pork went to the wayside, but Dan, he's, a... Uh, I'm gonna say you're an infectious disease, disease endocrinologist at this point. Epidemiologist. 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 Endocrinologist
0: Epidemiologist. is like the hormones. yes yeah, So many so many Latin names. Yeah. But my, my specialty is is right now is COVID outbreaks, healthcare associated infections. That's what right. I do for like a day job.
2: And, but when, uh, I like to when, be involved in advocacy like what Jason does. So when I met you, you were telling me a story about there was a an outbreak of a skin-eating disease at the hospital you were working at, and after all the trial and error and trying to figure out how this thing was spreading, he finally realized that there was a Filipino janitor cleaning, and he just didn't he didn't know the language enough to mm-hmm. know to not do that. And it was just an amazing find. And Dan has gone on. I don't. I don't. I don't want to get too much into his personal life. He's engaged. Oh, of You're engaged to a, a sleep therapist, like. It's just amazing. I, I follow her tweets and and listen to her. She's a great person. But you're engaged, yeah. and uh, yeah, you 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 like the Scottish music, right? That yes, was, I do. And then um, you joined the guard, and you yeah, were on the, the front line record. of front line of contact tracing in in your state of Pennsylvania, yes. and you were telling me that you just. You were just uh, defending the capital.
0: Yeah. So down. I was, I wasn't like one of the guys who was on the front line, but I was, I'm an officer
2: in a unit that was down. In you were there. Yeah, yeah. You were on more of a front line than I am. You're always <laughs> yeah. diminishing your heroes <laughs> It's so humble. Well, I mean, the the real
0: heroes are the people who stood out there with with guns and bulletproof vests, and the ones who actually found there were yeah. I think five arrests of people who were uh, trying to get into the Capitol with lots of ammunition, trying to do us harm. And right. so I, I get to, I have the privilege of working with those people a couple, you know, infrequently because I'm a, the guard is a reservist unit, but yeah, I, I I've it's been a privilege
2: to work with those people. So. But I think people have to know that on both sides, it's real humans. Brian Sicknick was a real human that got caught in the middle of everything, and you could have too. And a lot of servicemen and women, they're getting caught up in the middle of this too in a way that we can't even imagine because military says, respect your president, respect the government, you know, and it's hard. You were kind of quieted um, up until, until, I would say, up until around – December you were just kind of muzzled a little bit you you were fearful about coming on and talking and I didn't want you to say anything that would incriminate you (laughs) but now we've moved on to somebody that wants to have a real COVID plan and agenda Mm -hmm. and what I think is amazing is you love vaccines you 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 and i we tout vaccines it's better to get it and have the chance of survival than definitely not and mm-hmm. spreading it further so tell me why just tell me why you why vaccines are so important to you so
0: i, I just wanted to quickly
2: address like yeah it's,
0: it's been a real challenge of public health communication in general um yeah. especially like with my various commitments like working in government, working in military, like it's it's important for us to like try to be fair, balanced, and not try to say things that are too confrontational and not to express too many opinions. So like I'm not saying when it's me saying stuff in public, I'm not going to go say because I am such and such a person, I am saying this because unfortunately, we do need to have like these these boundaries and everything. So, mm. um, it's it's important to, to 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 delineate that, especially when I go on you know Facebook Live, for example. But uh, for me, for vaccines and for disease prevention in general. It's, a, it's, it's really important. And one of the reasons why I got into the work that I did and what I have done is because um, it, it's kind of been in- inevitable. Scientists in my field in infectious disease have known for decades that there was going to be like the neck was called the next big one. Like there's going right. to be a big pandemic. There's going to be a big outbreak. We, we had swine flu. We were worried about it with, um, the Ebola crisis and with Zika, but going back even into the early 1900s, when we had the, the pandemic was quote unquote Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Um, we've known for a long time. And so, uh, one thing that I personally think has been a failure of our, um, organization and the, our, our philosophy towards disease prevention is that we're not engaging enough in public discourse and right. being able to talk to people who don't have our backgrounds. Um, and I think there's a, there's a general unwillingness to do that because that's kind of how we're trained to do it. Um, or it's, it's, it's a challenge. So I appreciate the chance to come on and talk about that. Right. So sorry for that, like long disclaimer, but yes, no vaccines, vaccines are uh, one of the most effective tools that we have to, um, Uh, to control and prevent disease they're one of the biggest public health successes in history right we've uh, eradicated smallpox we've practically eradicated polio by mass vaccination campaigns Um, vaccines have also dramatically dropped down cases of um, of numerous other viral diseases uh, and some bacterial diseases that that really put a dent in our population so it's it's hard we're kind of in this position as a society where the vaccines have done such a good job that diseases that they prevent are not really around. And so people are like, why am I getting this mysterious juice injected into my arm? Well, if you don't, it's hard to see, you know, what the value is of that because it's worked so well in the past. So for, I'm really passionate about trying to get engaged in public communication, again, speaking as Dan, not speaking on behalf of anyone else. Of course. Um, But you know really wanting to connect with people who have concerns and who are, are worried and uh, i'm worried too I, I i want to you know try to support people as best i can um in this very difficult time with COVID um and all the political and the social tumultuousness that we've seen as a result so that's kind of my my background
2: awesome what about you jeffrey how are you doing
3: oh man It's, well, Jason, you know a little bit more about what's been happening behind the scenes here, so I can't say too much more other than that. Um, But, I mean, to Dan's point, like about you know we're so used to vaccines just being around and working that you don't ever really think about it i think it was in 2018 here in washington we ended up uh, issuing a public health crisis because measles uh, has been on the rise here because you have large anti-vax communities uh-huh. and so unfortunately you've seen that rise in um some of the more affluent neighborhoods where people you know think because they have the money they have the knowledge and that seems to be uh a little bit of a, a problem because we saw, oh, man, we saw several counties around the state end up having to not go into lockdown, but they had to, you know, start issuing guidance that, you know, if you haven't gotten the vaccine, you can't go to school. Right. And, of course, that, that ended up being a big, a big blow up here was that, you know, there were a bunch of people who wanted to send their kids to school, but the population, you know, that had been vaccinated was like in the low 70s. 70 percentage so you ended up seeing these blow ups and uh i want to say ctac ended up being one of the places that um where they were finding the spread coming around so you had this main vector of airport travel where everything was coming in and dispersing you know either south or west and and I imagine that in the early days of, of COVID, you know, that was one of the first things that we really looked at too was, you know, how many of these how many of these distribution centers for viruses essentially, you know, were coming at out of the airports.
2: I never looked at it that way as distribution centers for COVID. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that. So people say The vaccine, there's certain um, there's certain problems with it. And what I want to know is what is vaccine in? You know, they they're giving you something, but there's a fluid around it. And people are talking about that fluid as being an issue for things. So I'd like to ask Dan, what is it composed of? Yeah, so
0: it's every vaccine is a little bit different. And of course, it's it's a natural thing among people who really are not well versed in like the chemistry and the biology of it right. to, to be concerned yeah. about it. And it's, it's, I completely understand it. Sometimes when I read the, the, the long chemical names, like, and I have a back, I'm not in My background uh-huh. is like microbiology, immunology, and organic chemistry. And I yeah. still get intimidated by some of the names there. So it's completely understandable to have these concerns. Um, the reality of it is that these vaccines that are being distributed um it's, it's, there's the components of the vaccine that are meant to make it work, like to, to make your immune system kind of recognize as part of the pathogen, the part of the virus or the bacterium that causes the disease. And so your immune systems kind of trained, goes to this dress rehearsal, as I've said before, of, 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 of getting the immunity without getting the disease. Um, but then the, the fluids and the vaccines that are coming out, like the, the, they're usually just like suspensions of like saline solution for sure. So, um, some people say, oh, they're these viruses are can sometimes passage in fetal tissue like for fetuses that's not true true. um there's other sometimes there's preservatives that have been put in there like there were some people point to a a a, a compound called thimerosal which is like a sulfur containing containing, container mercury containing compound that people think is linked to you know various health issues first of all those studies have been debunked and second of all those the Tyramine is still not even used in these vaccines anymore. So there's like it's like a saline solution with some preservatives mixed into it. If you look at the chemical names, it can be intimidating. But right. I mean, if you look at the chemical compounds within an apple. And you just read the chemistry of it. Those names count, sound very intimidating, yeah. um, and you know you see the words acid, and you know and you see chlorine and various mm-hmm. you know compounds and everything. People get intimidated, right? And yeah. that's that's okay. That's more of a reflection on our uh, lack of communication from the science community, as opposed to people mm-hmm. being dumb. Like people aren't stupid. They're looking up and they're trying to figure this out, and we're not giving them enough information. Uh, and that's why I'm on here to try and rectify that a little bit.
2: So there's there's literally worse things in our Advil tablets, like that are can you know the uh, the jellies, the gummies, the uh, all of the ibuprofens that we take. What we what if, we- if you've ever had if you've ever
0: had nacho cheese, or if you've <laughs> ever had a hot dog, we like probably had worse than what's in the if vaccine. If you've ever had
3: a cigarette, Jesus.
0: Yes, right. if you ever had a cigarette, but that's the thing we we don't as a society, we don't really communicate these risks very well. And I think a lot of that is on us to say, like, not say how stupid are you for being concerned about what's in this injections? Like, well, I want to know what's going into my body too. Um, But it's, it's a matter of perspective of like, we don't really know what we eat and drink too much. Like a lot of alcoholic beverages that we have are going to be much more harmful than a, a dose of the COVID vaccine. That's in, right. People talk about that again, thimerosal, that compound um, in that mercury compound that's not in vaccines anymore. When it was used in vaccines, you would get more mercury into your body by eating a pair, a single pair than buy a single vaccine with thimerosal on it so wow. you know it's it's we don't really talk about these scientific issues well enough and we don't train people well enough and we don't have a good enough education system to talk about this nationwide so i understand people's concerns but it really isn't that much of an issue
3: I mean, we saw a lot of the, we see a lot of the same things like i grew up on a farm in eastern montana for example and you know around the time that i was in high school the big the big fear was genetically modified organisms and you're mm-hmm. looking at <clears throat> all of these dna changes and you you saw these movements and funny enough it was actually pretty well distributed between you know left and right as to who believed what but a lot of it centered around this idea that somehow whatever you were ingesting was going to change your DNA. And, you know, when you think about biology and how just even the simple act of digestion works, that means that literally anything that you've ever eaten could have possibly changed your DNA. And that's just not how it works. But unfortunately, explaining that to people who are already in this heightened state of fear that there's some sort of mass conspiracy about what oh. we're putting into our food and and now our vaccines yeah you know it, it seems to come out of the same thread of just this lack of understanding about the scientific process and how that works you know with with vaccines as i've talked about on the shows, is, is that every vaccine you take is not 100% safe it's a calculated risk it's just that you know in terms of whether you get the disease you know you're looking at a 90% risk factor in some cases to you know a 1 in 600,000 to a 1 in 1 million risk factor
2: yeah Yeah,
0: much more likely. I think Dr. Paul Offit, who's a very um, vocal proponent of vaccines and has engaged in a lot of science communication at like a national, international level, he said about vaccines like you're much more in terms of serious injury or or death from a vaccine, you are much much more likely to get seriously injured or killed driving to your doctor's office to get the vaccine than you are from actually getting the vaccine. And it's because we just don't really understand the levels of risk. Uh, and that's something that we really need to communicate better in our in the way that we engage with the public.
2: Right. And uh, if anybody has any question, go and buy yourself a six-piece <clears throat> six chicken McNugget, eat two of them, and then leave four of them out in the sun for a while and see what they turn into. Yeah. So I've, what I think is really interesting is this. Now... What they, what, what I'm going to go off of, because I don't know quite how they did the COVID vaccine, was with um, AIDS. They removed the component that, that causes the immune deficiency and they replace it with DNA that can cure diseases from sickle cell disease and possibly MS. They can restructure these things. And I think, I don't think that that's how COVID works, but I really like this concept of retrofitting. Viruses with with um, potential health saving qualities, and and yeah. so how do we get from there to what they did with the 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 MRA COVID?
0: Yeah, so the the there's different types of vaccines that are available and you, you kind of touched on some of them so there, there was there were, before this there were two major categories of vaccines one was what we called live attenuated vaccines which mm. were similar to what you're talking about like a vi- a form of the virus that has been like processed to be much less lethal practically nil, or not causing disease but still look very much like the disease that it causes and so that's basically putting into your system like a very minor or like asymptomatic infection so that your body can kind of naturally fight that. Uh, and then when the real virus comes in or the real disease comes in and that can make you very sick, you've already had again this dress rehearsal. Um, the second type was um, the the inactivated vaccines, which were basically like different components of the virus, like different structures that your immune system would kind of see um, during an infection, but there would be the, it wouldn't be a functional virus. It wouldn't be able to do its thing. It wouldn't be able to, you know, be able to infect. So with these, um, the two COVID vaccines that are now licensed and they, they're not the only ones that have been licensed into other countries, but the major ones are the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, the ones right. that are the two doses, they use messenger RNA, which is in this process of like your body, like develop, like using DNA and then performing its life functions. Uh, and messenger RNA is a, t- a type of molecule that is basically an intermediate, like communicator messenger molecule, hence messenger RNA, where um, it actually kind of, your DNA is kind of like the library that it says, this is what information needs to be encoded. Right. Um, and this is what the information that your body needs to function. And then your proteins are the structures in your body that actually do the functions. And the messenger RNA is like, reads the library and then says, okay, here's how we make proteins. And so that structure, that structure the messenger RNA is the major component of these vaccines where the vaccine introduces RNA from the virus um, that your body can ingest and take in and say, okay, I now know how to like make these proteins. And those proteins are the sections of the virus that your immune system would recognize. So instead of just putting in the proteins, it's putting in the tools for your cells to naturally produce these
2: proteins. It and just so generates the, the, uh, the spike, but not the whole virus.
0: Exactly. Yes. Right. And so the mRNA cannot... Um, mess with your DNA. It cannot do that. It's just your cells can now produce... The, by themselves the structures that the that your immune system can recognize and then have the same process of like the dress rehearsal so it's a different way of producing vaccines it's a very innovative way and it's a lot of scientists are thinking that if this works really well it's going to be the future of vaccines because it's right. it was super fast for these to be manufactured um, so yeah sorry uh, Jeffrey oh, I know I just God. totally like took that question on but that's my no, ba- no, no my, is- my background is all of this like microbiology <coughs> organic chemistry immunology stuff so
3: oh, yeah, yeah yeah well I'm a, I'm a data analyst by trying so, like, for me, like, it doesn't matter what field that I'm in. Understanding the numbers and the analysis—that's that's where I live. I see. Okay, so, yeah. I didn't
0: want to steal any thunder, so
3: I apologize. No, not at all. <laughs> no,
2: anyway, that's good. So, no,
3: this is what we need, though. This is what we need. We need people excited about what their yeah. profession is and and their knowledge and being able to share that because yes. we, we, for the last while we've had this just knowledge gap by force that is not helping anybody understand where we're at
2: right and, and the, so and the, able I able understand the, that is huge. I think the conversation gets lower and lower and simpler and simpler so that people just don't even understand there's a broader conversation above that. You know, it's like finding a niche in something so that you can complain about something that overall, you know, um, ignores the argument entirely. So I love having these conversations. And I do want to get into statistics, but I just want to... I want to touch more on that. So that's it's kind of like putting another book in your library. So when your body says, "Hey, we need to check out this blockbuster movie for this COVID thing," it says, "Yep, we got it right here, no problem." And I like. I'd
0: say it's more like if you're going to use that analogy. So I I think just to to rephrase that, like the, the your DNA is the library, right? That's all the books in there, right? Right. And you, you have the I I think the. The, pro, the, the, the way that you can kind of think of it is that the, the mRNA is like the barcode on your receipt from the library when you borrow a book, gotcha. right? You have that information. People know that you have that. You know that they have that book, but you're not corrupting the original book. People okay. just know what information is in or out of the library. So that's kind that. of how I would phrase that. Does that make sense to Jeffrey? Does that make sense? to Oh yeah. It
3: it makes sense to me. Absolutely. You know, funny enough, like I got on the subject of this with, with my, with my kids because we've been, we've been talking about what the vaccine can and can't do. And one of the things that, you know, especially growing up on a farm and ranch, you know, we talked about colostrum, you know, that first, that first milk from mom that has a lot of those, uh, the immunology of of mom in order for baby to be healthy and so i i actually thought this was a really interesting question i don't know how much of an answer you might have is is something like an mrna vaccine you know going to be able to help pass on that immunity to baby
0: um i don't really think so at least for now um potentially um at least in terms of the vaccine like the mrna component of the vaccine is not gonna get passed from mother to baby. What we're encouraged by, and actually um, it's a discussion that's ongoing about like the safety and efficacy with pregnant mothers. uh, What you're talking about, like that first milk, there's a lot of antibodies and a lot of, like you said, the immune system of the mother can be passed to the baby. different vaccines that happen before the COVID vaccine have been given specifically to mothers while they're still pregnant right. so that they can build up antibodies. And then those antibodies can be given uh, from their immune system can be given to the baby. So I think it's, it's, it's ent- in- theoretically possible. The question is like, we need to, I, I, there's like a personal choice component with, per- with pregnant mm-hmm. women right now. I think there's last I checked this recommended that pregnant women get it but we still need to get that like safety efficacy study down because again mrna vaccines are really new to science there's only Mm -hmm. like a decade old or so in terms of theory so for them to be distributed to millions of people we still need to know but i would think that if this worked i could see the covid vaccine working just like that but it wouldn't be the mrna being passed from mother to baby it would be the mother gets the mrna builds up the immunity that immunity then gets passed to the baby does that make sense Mm -hmm. Yep, makes perfect sense to me.
2: That is so cool. And then what I I have a big question now that we can go on for a while because we're going to start drifting into the more statistic type stuff. (laughs) Uh, What we have millions of Americans that have already had COVID. And when I reached out to you, it was this idea of herd immunity to where if everybody gets the disease, we're all going to just get the immunity. and what I was worried about was it just bouncing from region to region and getting stronger and, and creating these variants. And you said, yeah, that's what would happen. And so in the opposite, vaccines need to be pushed out just as quickly. And But what I wanna know is for these millions of Americans that have had COVID already, do they already have these antibodies? Are we worrying about giving them vaccines too? Or are we that far ahead of the game to where now we have 60 million vaccinated because 25 million of them already had it
0: very good question and that's very key to like our response to covid right now so it's it's pretty well accepted that people who do have covid or did recover from covid have at least some kind of short-term immunity and that's actually being taken into account when distributing vaccines like if people are like maybe just recently had covid and it's hard for us to get them a vaccine maybe they can kind of go to the back of the line a little bit because they have some kind of excuse me, short-term immunity. The challenge though is that um, the, it's not just you have immunity and you don't. There's a lot of gray areas and a lot of biology for lack of a better term that, that can affect it. So without going into too much jargon, like you have T cell exhaustion and, you're, and uh, it's autoimmune conditions and all these other things that happen at the molecular level within someone's immune system. That means that being infected doesn't necessarily mean that you have the same level of immunity as a vaccine and also that different people who were infected with kind of the same dose of virus might have different levels of immunity so what the vaccine does is it standardizes that like we're giving everyone a, an equal dose of the of the, the the virus which is not the virus but like the the immune component of it and and giving them a sufficient time to have this immune response built up so
2: all all at the same time to stamp it down enough
0: exactly so we should be vaccinating people who in my opinion we should be vaccinating people who did have covid because they might have some immunity but then we now know how much immunity they actually have and we know that that is a good standard to have so um i would strongly encourage anyone who has had covid to get vaccinated but if you can't right now you have a little bit of time that some of your other friends and family might not have if you didn't have covid so that's how i would say that
3: so let's talk about because this is this is going to be one of the arguments at least that I've seen is is that you know in terms of getting the co- getting COVID and having that Im- uh, immunity versus getting the mRNA uh, vaccine and having that immunity, one of the things that I've had to tell people is is that you know you can't you know, you can't look at this in terms of, well, I've had COVID once. So that means I'm immune to all of these different variants. That's right. kind of like how we've seen with the flu virus, for example, yes. where you know, we have nine different variants that we're vaccinated against. And a lot of the times we're like hoping by a region that we get it right, which is why like in 2018, for example, statistically, we had a higher uh, mortality than normal um, that the CDC tracks. And it was because the variant that became the prominent variant in the United States at the time was not the variant that was being pushed vaccine-wise from mm-hmm. my understanding.
0: Yes, that's exactly right.
3: So with this, one of the things that is going to be the biggest question to a lot of people's minds is what is the pure benefit of getting this mRNA, mRNA vaccine that, you know, is going to be better than you just having COVID. So let's, let's not talk about herd immunity in that regard, but I, you know, to me, what I've seen is, is that it wouldn't, you know, from all of these different variants, we still have that same spike protein. So as long as we still have that same spike protein, regardless of the variant, we don't have to have six different vaccines for COVID. We can have one. Yes. But we also now have the ability that if there is a new variant that doesn't necessarily have that spike protein, We can tool up a new vaccine rather quickly to be able to, to address those issues.
0: Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's that's the big challenge with the COVID vaccine because we're already starting to see there's a the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, which is a completely different mechanism. Like it's what? it uses adenovirus vectors. Like that's a whole nother like I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But there's already some evidence that it's not as effective against some of the variants that are coming out, like the South African variant that is recent. So so it's 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 a challenge because like with the flu vaccines, flu the the structure of the flu virus means that it mutates very quickly and every year we have like different technically different viruses every year even though they're kind of the same family because they just evolve that quickly so we need a new flu vaccine every year and what we don't know is how this pandemic spread of covid is going to affect um like our need for vaccine every year is are we going to need a seasonal covid vaccine or not or are we like we don't really know um because we're still early on we've just kind of we're getting through just our first almost winter season of COVID. And I'm expecting it's probably going to be like seasonal spiking back and forth. um, And hopefully the vaccines are effective. So Jeffrey, you bring up a really good point and I wish we had an answer, but the reality is those spike proteins are mutating. And the reality is some vaccines are better than others at protecting against multiple strains of COVID. But the mRNA vaccine structure and the way that that works, the way it is processed is actually allows scientists to do things more easily to respond. So in theory, if there's new mutants that pop up, well you already have the structure you already have the setup you already have the system you just kind of tweak a couple letters in the in the message and control c control v and you're you're on, you're in business again in theory obviously safety efficacy everything but it's 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 exciting to see mrna vaccines get this kind of clout because they could be the future of these rapid response vaccines because it's unheard of there'd be no way that we could have done like uh, uh, like other types of vaccines as quickly as effectively without this so i'm 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 pretty pumped about just the the platform of mRNA
2: vaccine. Me too, because the possibility of us planning ahead and creating things for the next 50 pandemics is a real possibility, and I love that. But before we get too far, so what we're saying basically is even though these variants are are different than COVID-19, we haven't really reached a COVID-20 or a COVID-21 yet. There isn't a totally different virus it's just brothers and sisters of that first one
0: yeah so in terms of the genomics of like the looking at the genomes of these viruses um the way that we classify viruses, the way we classify species in general, ranging from viruses and bacteria up to like horses versus humans, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it is kind of subjective in terms of whether or not we call a new virus COVID-19, COVID-20, or okay. flu A or flu B. Um, there there are some kind of rules in place for that, um, but it's hard because we're always learning new things so right now what's happening is that the coronavirus disease or the SARS coronavirus 2 SARS-CoV-2 is SARS-CoV-2 the actual COVID name too. of the virus that causes the disease called COVID-19. Right. So SARS-CoV-2 is its own virus that is kind of similar to the family of viruses that we call until now the SARS virus which is you know what caused the 2004 2003 I, I'm 2003 2003 2003 0203 yeah i'm too young for this shit um i mean
3: i'm only 35 so i was
0: dude i was in grade school when that happened so (laughs) anyways um but yeah so there's there's the different classes of viruses but yes you're correct so the in general the sars cov2 virus is pretty much the same but it's kind of like getting different hair color and different eye color and looking a little different and having different skin pigment if you were to kind of compare that to humans right it's not exactly the same but it's it's like it's going from one type of human and chain gradually changing into like a slightly different looking version of human if sure. we were going to kind of project the virus onto ourselves
2: if an alien came down and looked at all humans they would say they're just humans but humans seem to go that's a black human that's an asian human yes. but basically we're just human yeah okay basically. so what i want to get into now is oh, it's so it's so distressing because it, it adds so much gray area we we were we were trying to track and and get statistics on covid because that's what we do as a country and that's what science does we know where we're going because we know where we just were we know where to step next because we know where our last step was but we kind of flew blind a little bit they the cdc kind of lost the ability to to gather statistics and now we're trying to generate statistics and so going forward I think we're going to have a, a real clear eye on how many cases are happening, but I don't know if we'll ever have a clear eye on how many cases actually were. And the same goes, and I want to ask you about this, but in a broader question, the, the negative effects of the vaccine, people with heart disorders or maybe allergic reactions, are those being tracked?
3: Yes. So I want to start with the statistic side of reporting, just because that's my area. <clears throat> I mean, when you're relying on a couple of different things, number one, you're relying on people being willing to self-report that they have symptoms. That's or, first. And or four.
2: know that they have it.
3: <clears throat> yeah, or know that they have it. Or even if they are, you know, ninety-nine point nine 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 percent certain they have it them not seeing the benefit of going in and getting tested and saying, yes, I have it. You know, you have that issue in, in reporting in any realm. So the numbers that we see are, I guarantee you, far lower than the numbers that we actually ex- uh, actually yeah. have experienced. Yeah. So that, that very much is, is going to be true from a statistical standpoint. There's, uh, I guarantee you that what we have seen reported is probably far less in terms of cases, right. which, you know, in terms of when you're looking at lethality is probably a good thing, because then, you know, this, the virus isn't as lethal as people expected. That doesn't mean it's not serious. To be clear, where we stand right now in terms of the number of deaths, there are only two more events in human history that have more deaths. The next one is the U.S. Civil War at 655,000 total dead and then the the 1917 18 epidemic in which we saw approximately 750,000 dead and that's just based on the best numbers that we had and by all means we could hit those numbers by summer
2: by the end of the month they're saying 650,000
3: that's that's entirely possible i mean
2: i don't think it is but i want to get your you guys' opinion on that
3: so so at least from at least from the statistical standpoint statistically speaking yes there are far more cases than we're aware of now in terms of yeah. deaths on the other hand i'm gonna leave that one up to dan
0: <laughs> oh well i mean it's this is what gets so challenging with with tracking death report i think what jeffrey the point that you brought up was is really important and really key to this is that the 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 information we can conclude about this virus is only as accurate as the the, the methods that we use and the information and the the people that we collect data from right. and that's not to say that people are unethical or inaccurate or whatever. It's just like, I mean, I I do case investigations for COVID. And when I ask people, it's like, do you have any symptoms? They say, no, I'm completely asymptomatic. It's like, okay, do you have a headache? Yes. Do you have a fever? Yes. Well, those are symptoms, right? It's just it's just a, a natural reaction. People just want to say, I'm asymptomatic because they think they feel fine. It's a, it's a desire for us to want to feel fine. So right. that kind of stacks it up. And because people either don't have access to testing or they don't want to get tested or they just don't think that they feel ill, they just might think, oh, I had a bad night's sleep last night, so they don't go get it. You know, we don't get the actual testing number. So the denominator, you know, the number of deaths over the number of cases we have, that number of cases can be pretty inaccurate. Right. Um, in terms of deaths, um, it's actually easier for us to track um, severe COVID because most people again we do have areas of the country that don't have access to you know very good health care um but we're more likely to catch severe deaths from people going to the hospitals or people needing medical care or people just dying and then getting their they're getting tested during autopsies right. so we're more likely to get ac- more accurate data from severe covid uh so i personally think that um when it comes to lethality, Um, it's very clear that this virus is very lethal as compared to other types of viruses, especially the flu viruses that we see in most years. But I think it's, it's a challenge with the cases overall, but when you actually kind of do the math with the, just the sheer number of everything we have, whether or not we're missing a few million cases kind of comes out in the wash a little bit when it comes to lethality. Like it's 0.8 versus 0.7% or 1.2 versus 1.3% because okay. we just have that many cases and that the fact that the, we're in that position is is a, there's a whole bunch of problems with why we're in there. But uh, in terms yeah. of tracking the lethality, we're now at that point where like a few million missed cases doesn't make a whole ton of difference uh, for how we consider the lethality of the virus. It's lethal. It can kill people. It can cause severe long-term complications in people who do not die. And that's why it really frustrates me when people who use statistics to say, oh, it's a 99 point whatever percent recovery mm-hmm. rate. Well, yep. I, I, I have friends who've had COVID and they have long COVID, which is like these long-term consequences, shortness of breath, yeah, months later. Too. And they're in their 20s. They're athletes yep. in their 20s. So we need to consider it's not just life or death. It's recovery or non-recovery. Right. And, well, and that's what, one of the...
2: Oh, go ahead, Jason. I want to say, because somebody brought this up, is that the, the negative effects of the vaccine aren't being, um, they're not being collected. The data isn't being collected. But that it, getting a virus is going to weaken your system for a point in time. And if you have a weak system to begin with, it's going to weaken it even further. So I don't know if it's necessarily COVID weakening your body. It's your body being weak to begin with. And I don't, so I just don't, I don't think there's as many, I don't think the negative effects, like when somebody gets COVID and dies in a car crash and they say he died of COVID, I don't think that's a thing. And I don't think you can blame COVID on weakening your body a little further than it was already weakened. If I have a bad heart and and I get the COVID and I get weakened a little bit, it's going to come off as more because I have a weak heart. Yeah,
0: so when it comes to tracking deaths in COVID, um, I think or just
2: sicknesses or illnesses, you know, or
0: illnesses or anything. I think a lot of there's there is kind of that argument that's thrown around of like, well, this per- there's some people who die of a car crash and they yeah. had COVID. Right, I think, was it George Floyd? I think had tested positive for COVID as well yep. recently, yep. right. Well, I mean, there are people who died with COVID and there's people who died of COVID. Of and COVID. so when we talk about, I, again, without disclosing too much about like the ins and outs of what I do for my living, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of systems in place. It's not something that public health professionals across the country just ignored, right? Uh, when talking about COVID deaths, what we do as a society, at least in numerous states, I don't know for every state, but at least from my state, um, every COVID death that is said people have died or there's these deaths of COVID, the, they, there's a filter of like whether or not a physician or somebody else or, or a clinical person has determined whether or not COVID was the primary cause or substantially led to right. cause of death. So if someone, let's say, does have emphysema or COPD from a lifelong smoking – that is one of their causes of death if they get COVID, and then COVID kind of kicks kicks that bucket over. But COVID right. is also a cause of death for that person because it was the interaction of the long standing right. disease and the infection, and so those count as COVID deaths. where somebody who is you know is completely healthy, test positive for COVID, has the sniffles, and then you know for you know like you said, dies in a car crash. Those deaths are not logged as COVID deaths in right. most states, and I say most because I don't know. All. I don't know for sure. I need to double check myself on that. Sure.
3: Okay. So one of the things that I, I I've talked about is you know we see this classification with COVID, and a lot of people have been trying to nitpick the oh well they didn't die of COVID they had pneumonia or oh right. they didn't die of COVID you know they had a heart failure or they didn't die of COVID they had liver disease and the reality was is is that yeah those systems may have been weakened but COVID was a driving factor, and mm-hmm. so curious enough from you like. Is, you know, are they trying to use an argument for COVID because, you know, instead of like what we've kind of systematically done with science where like you know, with hiv aids if you want to say oh we've just died of hiv aids and then when we're looking at what they're actually dying of you know from immunodeficiencies or
2: moment, they're trying
3: to nitpick down the line so that way it's not COVID or it's not aids you know yeah what do you think well about
2: that? i mean
0: for me i think I, i'm really glad you brought up hiv aids because strictly speaking if we if we tried to use so the people who who got and say well this person like had other health conditions and then had COVID and died. So COVID was not a cause of death, right? right? If you were to apply that same logic, we'd have practically no deaths from HIV AIDS ever right? Because exactly. the cause of death exactly. of HIV AIDS is very seldom the actual infection. It's the weakened immune system. And then you get a secondary fungal or bacterial infection or something else that kills you, right? And so those deaths would all be lodged as pneumonia. And if we just completely disregarded AIDS and it's like, okay, HIV is just whatever. It's just some virus, right? We'd be completely missing the public health impact that AIDS and HIV has on right. our system, right? Whether we like it or not, COVID is causing serious issues. People who did not have, people who did not need to be on oxygen and on ventilated in hospitals are now on oxygen and in ventilators in hospitals, right? That's a public health infrastructure burden that is caused by COVID. People are getting sick. People are having symptoms. People are exposing one another. There are outbreaks happening. There's incapacitation happening in our society. And so we, it's if we were to kind of just dismiss it, I think it comes from a place of want. people want, they get to really be okay because mm. if we really just accept or it's hard to accept that there's systematic failures surrounding us, especially when in our little bubbles of life, like for me, I have not, I'm not a healthcare professional. I don't work in a hospital. I just work on studying the diseases, right? I don't see dozens of people getting sick and dying and needing ventilators day to day after day. So I look around and say, well, I mean, you know, I, you know, so-and-so had COVID, he's seems to be okay. Like it's not changing too much of our social circle in terms of the disease. And right. so people are like, well, it's not affecting me personally. So it's not affecting the world. And that's a, again, a natural behavioral response. It's mm. the same people who say, well, um, you know, I'm trying to think of all these analogies of like, well, when we say statistically speaking, you know, during a recession, three, 5 million people lost their jobs. Well, I didn't lose my job and I actually got a raise. So the recession's not happening. Right. So it's that kind of same kind of behavioral thinking that we do to help us survive our lives as opposed to thinking about the world around us. I think, Jeffrey, you you might be able to comment better than I can from the data side there.
3: Absolutely. You know, statistically speaking on that one, you know, (laughs) the reality is, is is that we all live in small worlds, especially like where I grew up in very rural eastern Montana, Mm -hmm. you know. Even even to, you know, as much of a very similar point, you know, I never understood how racism was such an issue. Like, we had very few people of color around us, and they all seemed to be treated very well. So this idea that racism was a thing was very difficult for me to understand because, you know, even within my family, I had multiple people of different races in my family, and everybody was – treated as an equal it wasn't until i stepped outside of that world and lived in other places where i was like wow this the way that my family operates is not the normal yeah right And so stepping outside of that, you know, you just, from an, from an observation point of view, you start, you see that a lot where people have these closed world views because Uh you tend to surround yourself with a sounding board that echoes similar views to you. So when you have those similar views echoed to you time and time again, it's easier to believe, well, I ate today, so world hunger doesn't exist, Right. you know, um, Now, with with the virus, everybody wants to believe that they're going to be okay, And I think, you know, the number of people that have known somebody who have either gotten very mild symptoms or been asymptomatic, they look at it and they say, yeah, this is going to be fine. But, you know, even even in my personal bubble, I have only known two people that have been on ventilators and one person that's dead personally. And that's, and, but I've known plenty of people who have gotten the virus already, uh, including older family members. I've got, I've had family members with multiple comorbidities that have, I, that, you know, would be, you know, priority on the risk factors that, you know, barely had any symptoms and they came out just fine. And I've all, but I've known someone who's, you know, an athlete trainer and they're gone. They're right. literally a health nut. So the idea that, you know, you can just look at somebody and be like, yep, yeah, that person's going to die of COVID if they get it is, is quite wild and quite uncertain, but our brain does crazy things to rationalize our behavior and our survival. Yeah. So by saying, Oh, well, I'm not going to get it. Or if I get it, I'm going to be just fine. So,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, that's kind of like the whole, uh, the best analogy I have is, you know, I was a firearms instructor you might know that the gun is unloaded, but you still ain't going to point it at your head. Right. Because there's always that chance that you kind of forgot. And as one of my friends found out, you accidentally shoot yourself and sure you might survive it, but you're not going to be all the better for surviving it. And in fact, you're going to have a long haul to recovery. Now, speaking of long haul recovery, maybe you might know a little bit more about this, Dan, how many people, are there any cases of people with long haulers after having COVID dying months later after oh. they've, after they've had issues? Because one of the things Jason and I have talked about is, is, you know, what will most likely be a rise in either partial disability or permanent disability based on having had covid for these long haulers and'm right. kind of curious to see what you guys are seeing on that side
0: so i want to preface my answer by saying i don't know the exact numbers right i i right. i have anecdotal discussion points but given mm-hmm. that we're talking we have talked extensively about this as being a show based on evidence and, and science and facts i want to preface my answer because i'm going to do a little bit of speculating here um i oh. do know personally and we do know that there are large numbers of people who recover from covid by not dying Dying, um, and they do have long-term health conditions, right? So there's, um, there. it's well known actually that um, among the scientific community that COVID can actually mess directly with your heart tissue. And so people are having long-term heart complications. People yep. are having long-term lung damage. There are yep. younger people who are recovering who are supposedly f- – fairly asymptomatic, and who are getting chest CT scans five months later, and, and their doctors are saying, well, you, these lungs look like you've smoked for 20 years. So, they, you're absolutely right. We're saying, like, I, again, because I don't know the numbers, but they, these people are getting these long-term disabilities and having these long-term health conditions as a, po- uh, as a result of short-term diseases, uh, short-term infection. So, how that's going to be tracked in terms of deaths months and years later, I think it's going to be more of a challenge and I, I don't know, again, But uh, Mm -hmm. I think these deaths, those deaths will be on the orders of years or decades um, where Mm -hmm. people will look back and say, well, he was healthy and then he had COVID and now he has lungs like a smoker. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so that's kind of the chronic disease. So infectious disease epidemiology and chronic disease epidemiology, the study of those two diseases. Is there? There's some. There's some overlap, but there, there, there are a lot of philosophical differences in the terms of their approach. Like a lot of infectious diseases, like short-term, trying to find the source of the outbreak, looking for people who die short-term. Chronic disease, epi, is the is the the realm of. Public health study where these kinds of diseases, like where long COVID will be, are teased out. Like, what is the actual effect of how, what is the contribution of smoking? Well, this person smoked and he lived in poor air quality areas. And so, kind of teasing out what sections of uh, or what contributions each of those diseases have, that gets a lot more challenging and, frankly, is left up to the people like you who have a much more specific focus in data analysis as opposed to people like me who like study you know, mutations and genomics and the the structures of proteins. um, There's very different disciplines. So it requires a collaboration between people like me and people like you to understand this over the next like decades.
2: And people like me, to be honest about it all. And I want to say just really (coughs) quickly, Statistics matter to Dan and they matter to Jeffrey, but they don't matter to me as much. It doesn't matter if there's 80 million deaths or 10 million deaths. It still needs to be fixed, right? And so I think statistics are for an egotistic mind that's in control and failing. You know what I mean?
3: <laughs> I, think, I, I think that's where statistics get used a lot. Yes, absolutely. Right. And that's and I think that's the problem is, is that it bastardizes statistics, mm-hmm. you know, because in the end, what we're looking at is we're looking at, you know, what a standard deviation looks like in terms of the number of people who have suffered significant issues who have had you know who've had different exposures we're looking at what this you know what is the actual difference statistics isn't just saying 95% of people or 99.8% right. of people are going to recover from this just fine statistics is understanding of you know of the people that don't recover just fine you know what what does the what does the what does your sigma look like what does what does your z score look like what does what does your distribution look like in terms of people who are going to recover and have no issues mm-hmm. versus people who are going to be on a on a short to midterm recovery versus people who are going to be on a long-term recovery schedule sure. you know what we're looking at is what is what is the percent chance that if you've had covid or you've had a severe bout of covid what is going to happen to you statistically in the long run are -hmm. you going to fall into the group that you know they never felt anything or they had a mild mild symptoms and they literally you know they're going to walk around you know a month later and they're it's not going to be like they've ever had it versus the people versus the people the, the number of people or the the distribution of people who are going to be experiencing symptoms long term despite not having the virus.
2: That's the fun people though. who are
3: gonna be versus people who are probably not going to be able to work again. Right. Like the you know for the issue at hand isn't just you know whether you live or die. It's whether you're gonna be able to actually recover and live a full life again whether you know whether those of you who've gotten it are ever going to experience the quote-unquote normal that comes after this and for the people that end up getting vaccinated and never have those never have that worry that group of people you know statistically is only going to have to worry about whether or not they're going to experience anaphylaxia versus you know what is the distribution look like for people like you know my parents for example who have had covid and you know despite having mild cases of it are still dealing with you know, issues and symptoms months after the fact.
2: Oh, sure. But that's the you fun know. thing is you can take any data set and put it up up against another data set to make a comparison. Yeah. The fun part for you is watching the numbers as as time goes on, because that's what science is, is knowing what we know no, well, now until what we know tomorrow changes our opinion. And yeah. so that's the humility of science is knowing that you're wrong, but learning that you're so close to right,
0: you know. And that's well, been they, a major challenge with us. Sorry, yeah. just to cut in, Jeffrey. Yeah. That's okay. been A major challenge because there have been things, there have been substantial missteps that the scientific and medical communities have made throughout COVID, and the reality is that, I mean, these kinds of processes where people make informed decisions based on the data they already have, um, those. Though, and sometimes those are incorrect because we'd get better data that show us and that this is the scientific process. And so I think one of the consequences of this from a general perspective, not necessarily talk about COVID and health issues per, for a while, is that this is a huge social experiment for the world of science because yeah. it, forced the, it forced science to be right in front of the entire world. In a way that had never really happened before, in a public and so, like social media, instant messaging, instant sharing of information all this time. And what the reality is that the scientific method—I mean, it—it it, we really can't change it too much because we have to keep collecting data and make the best information as we can. But it—it it showed a lot of people that the scientific method doesn't always get it right the first time, and it also showed us in the field of science that a lot of people think that science is just like what we teach in school, which is like here's a bunch of facts about like. You know, the body and the world and the weather, like here are all these facts that we know. And people think in general that science is just like this repository of people who know stuff. And that's not the the, the, that's what we get end up with at the end of the scientific method. But what the millions of people, billions of people watching the scientific method unfold throughout COVID kind of had a bit of an awakening to how science actually works. Because this is exactly how it worked in HIV/AIDS. We didn't really have, we didn't know what was going on. It took a long time for us to figure it out, and then even further for us to acknowledge it as a society. Same thing with uh, Zika. We still needed to figure things out. H one N one. We made a lot of missteps during that pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. So, but this is the first time where it's like really been in the the true heart of the age of instant sharing of information in the social media age. Well, so it's going to the- be interesting to see how science adjusts, if at all.
2: The thing is, is that. If there's ten cases and eight people died, science has to say your chances of dying is pretty pretty large. But if there's a thousand cases and eight people died, well, then your chances are slightly smaller. And all that happens on a timeline; it doesn't happen at once. You can't retroactively tell a scientist you were wrong before so change your opinion. <laughs> that's not well, how that's not how time works. So well, that's
3: not how data works either. Right. And, and whether and whether you're dealing with infectious diseases or, or just product purchasing and looking for defects and failures Mm -hmm. that's not how uh, that's not how data science works either right because because the only the only way that you're going to get Uh, better data is by getting more data yes you know that's that's just it you know it's kind of like if you if you look at a small town in the way that they voted for president you might come to a conclusion of who's going to be president but until you actually apply that on the national level suddenly that number doesn't look anything like what you initially saw exactly and that's where and that's where you have this issue of time and cases over the long run is what's going to give you the best data. Sure, initially, you know, it looked like this was probably pretty, you know, going to be a lot deadlier Mm -hmm. than we see it as today. And a lot of people have taken that as the, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, 99.8% are going to recover from this just fine. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not what the data says at all. That's right. that's not how you interpret that. 99.8% per, uh, of people are going to survive it.
0: <laughs> and that, right. even that 99.8% of people surviving, if you're talking about a, comp- a country of 300 million people, you're still talking about like, Hundreds of thousands of people dying. Like, it's exactly, it's, you know, you talk about someone saying, you know, 500,000 people died versus 99.9% people recovered. Like, those might be pretty much the same statistic, but they imply two things that are very different. That's and the amazing. other thing is that the confounding factors, because as we studied this disease, as we learned more about it, we got better at treating it. So, right. mortality dropped and hospitalization rates dropped as we got new drugs um, um, that were effective, as Ooh. we started rolling out vaccines, as we improved our standards of care as we started recognizing early symptoms so you know it's it's hard to do these statistically sound studies in a vacuum when you have the ethical component of like we need to do the best we can and evolve our care with what information we have we couldn't let this play out and say oh this is what should have happened because we would have had millions of people die and we still do Mm -hmm. but i mean still
3: and that's, and and I mean, that's just it, you know, even from a data science realm and a data analyst realm, even as, you know, we're, a lot of my focus has been more on the business side, you get you get your primary understanding of what's happening and then you have to A, B as much as you can and decide what course of treatment is actually going to be more effective for your product medicine is no different in that realm it's you see what's happening you get you start to get an understanding then you have to start treating it and you a b it as much as you can it's like okay this this treatment seems to be more effective than doing this so we're going to move to this and then from there you just keep continuously evolving that's that's where the data and the the statistics side come in is, is that as we've like especially with covid we saw that there were different things that statistically changed the the way in which treatment was going to be given right. it wasn't based on what one person said it was based on what you were seeing in hospitals as you
2: treated nice it's my, my it head so is, complicated. It is really it is, complicated. Is, There's no easy is. answer to
0: any of this, but we just kind of have to continue to commit to like <laughs> using data like Jeffrey talks about that like we have to use that process mm-hmm. because if we didn't, we'd be so, so much worse off. We can And we can spl- I have the privilege of splitting hairs about whether or not we're 99% better off or 94% better off. Right. We have that privilege because millions of people stepped up and used the data-driven processes that Jeffrey just talked about. We have that yes. privilege as a society to criticize now.
2: Exactly. My head is schisming because we're 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 getting short on time, but there's some things I want to talk about. One of those treatments was monoclonal antibodies. And I wanna I wanna touch on that because that's what saved the president, right? And I think they're amazing. And people are saying that you should ask your doctor if you have COVID if that's an option. And so just let's touch on that one real quick. Yeah,
0: so monoclonal antibodies are basically like a do a mega dose of immunity like kind of fast-tracking the jackpot of your immune system, right? Where people talk about antibodies a lot. Um, they're basically the molecules that are like, they, they have a bunch of, in terms of the strict immunology, they have a lot of different functions, but the most important thing that they do is that they are able to recognize uh, specific structures of viruses or other things. Like for, for now, we'll say viruses um, and be able to, like mediate responses in your immune system really well. So they like, if you have antibodies to something, then you can recognize, understand what's going on. Your body can be like, okay, you have this virus and then stuff can happen as a response. So that's the major function that antibodies have among many other things. And so monoclonal antibodies are basically purified antibodies um, that are designed to recognize um, in this case, COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the structures on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you give those antibodies to someone and then once they have those antibodies that kind of skips all the processes of the body having to make their own antibodies in order to make those own their own responses in that way Love and that. so your immune system can immediately respond in a much more effective manner they are expensive as hell they are very very chall- it's very challenging even now to make a bunch of monoclonal antibodies right. so it's it they're generally reserved for treatment of very severe covid that looks like it's not going to end well for anyone because it's a fast it's like accelerating care very quickly it's a okay. different focus than like antiviral drugs which are meant to stop the virus from doing its thing it's meant to accelerate your your body's immune response to the virus
2: okay and then so johnson and johnson is 67 percent effective and the ones we have the modernas they're 95 percent effective but i heard a stat and it, it was interesting to me that the johnson and johnson was actually tested on people with some of the variants whereas the other ones were only tested with the original form and so of course there's going to be slightly less effectiveness but that's still really effective and then i want to say because of all this deaths are going down like cases of COVID are going down so on a positive note we're getting there we're doing it and so what are you excited about all this
0: I'm very optimistic, but we have to keep moving forward. We have to, like you talk about the Biden administration's plan to use the Defense and Produ- Defense Production Act to start manufacturing, you know, PPE at home, to start manufacturing like the chemical components that go into nitrile gloves that, you know, lots of healthcare f- professionals yes. wear to continue to manufacture vaccines. We need to continue improving. And I'm actually want to see better numbers of vaccine production accelerate kind of out through the, vi- the Biden administration. So I'm excited. I'm optimistic. But this is the time for us to double down and to triple down on what we know works, which is get more vaccines out, continue to mask, continue to social distance, continue to provide our society with the tools we need and to continue to listen to people like Jeffrey who have their background and data who are willing to speak on these issues. And as we have more data to be able to have these additional checkpoints where we can learn more and adjust our course as needed. So that's what I, I have to say about that. What about you, Jeffrey?
3: well and and you know and i appreciate you know as as a data person you know i'm not the end all be all because in the end you know what leads to understanding is having people who work in in these different fields of science like you be able to sit down and actually have the ability to talk to people about what's happening about what they're seeing and be able to Inform the public why we're doing what we're doing. Like I can only, you know, with numbers, I can only explain what's happening to Mm -hmm. a certain extent. I can't tell people the why it's happening. That's where we need people like you, and being able to explain why these, why what we're doing is so important, and why what Mm -hmm. we're seeing is so quickly changing. Because in the end, when when it comes to Battling things like this with science, it's not just going to be one scientist out in front saying, "Hey, I know everything." It's going to be fields upon fields of experts, people who are out there actually looking at this information, people mm-hmm. who know the data, people who know the science, people who know the patients. In the end, it's it's a mass effort that we're seeing for the first time, and we have a lot of. Uh, armchair quarterbacks that don't have that background or that education or that experience and in the end you know much to dan's point being able to get out and to speak as to what's happening is going to be the most important thing moving forward Hmm. the more the more people that we have like dan able to speak about what's happening you know especially to the layman, especially to the layman is is going to be key. But then also people, everyday people going out and sharing their experience, which is why when I get my vaccine, I'm going to live stream it. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to everybody about it. I've actually thought about this, you know, do a public access special live stream where I'm going to get the vaccine live and we're going to talk about what happens and we're going to talk about what follows up because, We hear enough stories out there, we need to hear more. We need to see more data about it. We need to hear more experts talk about what's going to happen afterwards. Not just politicians or people in national institutes. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I love a lot of the information Doctor Fauci spouts, and it's great. But we need more. We need more more people. We need more doctors. We need more epidemiologists. We need more immunologists. We need more virologists. We need it all.
2: I I would say (laughs) that's how we're
3: going to. That's how we're going to get past this stone wall of lack of information misinformation and disinformation
0: and i would like to add to that one more thing i know we're over time i apologize i think we're fine to kind of to to really build off of jeffrey's last point uh we need to listen as well i think one thing that we have been ineffective is that and again i'm not going to draw too much of my own personal experience is that public health professionals who do a lot of like data crunching looking at individual cases and everything they they're making decisions and making judgments that they believe are in their best, in everyone's best interests, and that's that's exactly what is they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But there are consequences to all of the decisions that we make, especially when we try to shut things down or when we try to modify masking or like all these different things, right? And so what we need to do is, as the professionals who are really you know on the ball with COVID, is we need to listen to people who do not share our expertise, not just to like learn about what they're learn what they're seeing, but they know things that we don't. Like I don't know how to Run a restaurant. I don't. If, so if I'm going to go in and say, well, we need to shut down these bars and restaurants. Well, is that the best move? We need to get the people who have their own experience in and expertise in the fields that are being affected by our restrictions, by our policies, to be right. able to speak up. And most importantly, we need to listen to them and respect their opinions and respect their expertise, even though and especially because they don't have epidemiology, virology, microbiology, whatever. They have their own experience that is just as important that we need to contribute because if we just wreck our economy if we just wreck people's livelihoods i that's only going to cause long-term damage and it's only going to make public health response harder so we need to listen and we need to be respectful and pay attention to what people are telling us
3: yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's been one of the biggest issues is, is, that you can't expect someone to shut down and not have any income coming in and survive a pandemic. You know, in the end, they're either going to have to make the choice of being open and potentially exposing themselves and others, mm. or they're going to have to, you know, go under and go bankrupt. And you know, struggle to make ends meet. The reality is, is that we have a variety of, of experiences out there in the world and we can learn how to make this better. We can yeah. learn how to do better right now and in the future because this won't be the last pandemic we'll ever see, guarantee.
0: It's not going to be the worst pandemic that we see in my lifetime. No. In my lifetime, we're going to have something worse. I guarantee you, I will put money on that right now. So we need to learn our lessons now.
2: And i want to i want to add a third point to listening to jeffrey and listening to dan is that the media has to learn how to tell this story better if you fear monger and tell people about all the negatives but never tell people about the positive aspects of things then people are only going to think negative if you start showing vaccines if we live stream a vaccine and people see jeffrey's fine i think more media should be doing that we should be showing good outcomes as well we need to be realistically informed we can't just be biasly informed to be scared into doing something you know what i mean
0: yeah credit to uh i think was the last night or two nights ago i was listening to rachel maddow um on msnbc and again i'm not endorsing her anything but i think this is one thing that she did really well um she did a very prolonged bit um and focus on a doctor in a in a uh, a very uh a lower income community of color in Southern California and they were being overlooked by public health infrastructure they just weren't, their clinic was not, was just completely overlooked with distribution of vaccines and she talked about these people who stood up and fought for their communities of color and fought for these communities that were being disproportionately affected with really high COVID rates, really high COVID deaths, even adjusting for COVID rates and people standing up so we need to look for the helpers and we need to show the positive aspects and and, and right. exemplify those people and then craft and modify our responses based on the things that people are doing that we in the public health expertise field are overlooking.
2: Well, I think people, they they see negative and they see it's a lost cause. So why fight? But I think once people realize the cases are going down and they could actually make a difference with their actions because other people are and, and good things are coming, then they want to be a part of the success. But I also think people want to They want to bury their head in the sand and say, see, they said it was really bad and there's no hope.
3: There's always hope. And that's the thing is, is that, you know, I think we get so used to this, you know, doom and gloom around Mm -hmm. us that we forget that, you know, right now is the time to fight like hell. And it's fight like hell for all the things that we are used to and, and all the things that are good you know this isn't going to be easy but when have we ever been known for ever doing things the easy way i mean the the reality is 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 that we we did a bunch of this the hard way now it's time to allow ourselves to do things the easier way until we find the easiest way and We're, you know, that involves everything from education to, you know, how do we help the local small business adjust their business model so that way they can stay open in the middle of a pandemic and still make Uh their ends meet, you know, taking all of those lessons and showcasing the good like you brought up. There are ways in which we can do this better and make this as good as it can be. Not perfect. Nothing will ever be perfect or might not even be as good as it once was. But there are ways that we can do it better and we can help our communities in the process. Yeah, We just have to figure out, we just have to be involved in it and help our community adjust. So that way we're not hurting as bad. It's going to hurt, don't get me wrong. But there's no reason for it to hurt as bad when we know that there are ways that we can adjust business models, adjust behavioral models, adjust, you know, our own expectations around, you know, world in a pandemic.
2: But no. Listen, we need to listen, learn, and respond. Listen, learn. Yeah, science is reactive until it has a chance to be proactive. (laughs) And then I guess my last question is, Dan, Kansas City, Tampa Bay. Oh
0: I I uh, I have no comment. I look for good games. I don't have a real horse in the race. I guess I have more tied to like personal ties to the Tampa area because my 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 aunt, uncle and late grandfather, great, late grandmother, like live slash live there. I'd have no real ties to Kansas city. I just want to see some good football, man. You know, we, we all, we all need a, a Super Bowl where we can just sit on our couch, eat Buffalo wings and just yeah. forget about life for a few hours and just watch a good game. And I and think a, that's what we all need.
2: A real interesting read on, on a final point on that is the football, uh, the NFL study on COVID that they sent to the CDC. That's going to come out as a, a paper. So I, I, think forward that's, to it. I think that's really good cool. thanks for being here Dan I know that's we took gross. a lot of your time up
0: no no and Jeffrey thank you so much for all of your contributions as well I think it's really valuable to have like the two voices like as many voices that we can have at this table for discussion so thank you for ha- hosting this platform and for and for for being here Jeffrey I appreciate that
3: of course I, I enjoy this
1: to those who would tear the world down we will defeat you this is our moment. this is our time to those who seek peace and security Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. Very mean and nasty place, place. and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is gonna hit as hard as life. Ask. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you, I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your five poor little children. Yes, we can.
0: to tell you things are bad, everybody knows things are bad, it's a, it's a depression,
1: in this lifetime you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself, it ain't about, it ain't how, about, hard you about you how hard you hard. hit, it's about how it's hard about you can and keep moving keep forward, moving how much forward. you can much take it and keep moving, moving forward. forward, that's how winning it's done,
2: welcome to public access America,
1: America. Yes, we can. yes we
2: can, now on Instagram and SoundCloud, wanted to,
1: wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad,
2: Twitter, Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Stitcher Radio app, Podable, and Spotify. Spotify. Yes, we yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making, making history in the making.